Peace be with you, church. Good evening to you all. Uh, if you could open up your Bibles, I invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke. We are in, we're beginning chapter 16. We'll start from verse 1 and continue through verse 17. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought up to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will de- de- be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The line the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray, church. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, Lord, this is a difficult text. Um, So I pray, especially today, that your word would go forth and remain, and whatever, Lord, is not from you may fall to the ground. Um, Father, be with us. Open our eyes. Open our spiritual hearts, Lord, to see the glory of Jesus and how he is calling us to live and what, is he, what he is calling us to, Lord, and how we are to manage our, our wealth, our possessions that you have entrusted us, Lord. Ultimately, it's all yours. It's not ours, Father. So, Lord, bless the preaching of your word. Be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, Some of you are thinking, what is going on here? Is this really in the Bible? Is Jesus 
really setting up this crooked man as an example for us to follow? And the answer is yes and no. Um, Honestly, I wish I could just skip this whole chapter and go straight to 17. Um, This parable of the unjust, dishonest manager is probably one of the most difficult parables uh, that Jesus told. If we look at verse 1 through 13 and isolate the parable from the greater context, we have one interpretation, an interpretation that is commonly used. But if we consider verses 14 through 17 and look at how the Pharisees reacted to this parable, then this adds a whole new dynamic because we must explain the reaction of the Pharisees. At the end of the parable, they are ridiculing him. They are offended. They are offended from the words of Jesus, and they are mocking Jesus for this parable. They did not like it. This parable is part of Jesus' table discussions. He is surrounded by, he is eating with tax collectors, with sinners, with him are his disciples, and there's also with them are the Pharisees. And Jesus begins this discussion in chapter 15, and he finishes this conversation with all three parties in chapter 17. So we're smack in the middle of it right now. And even though in our text today, Jesus speaks to the disciples, we read he also said to the disciples, the Pharisees are the intended target. They're the ones who Jesus is actually talking about. We know this because of the context of this parable, and we know this because of the reaction to this parable of the Pharisees. We don't have the reaction of the disciples, but we do of the Pharisees. This is intended for them. So let's look at the parable. There's a few things going on here culturally that we can unpack to maybe help us understand more of what is going on here. So we read there was a rich man who had a manager, and and charges were brought to him, to to this rich man, that this man was wasting his possessions. In those days, the net worth or the wealth of people was mostly measured by the amount of land that they had. And so imagine this rich man, he has a massive estate, probably hundreds and maybe even thousands of acres. And these estates, uh, they would, the, the, the owners, the masters of these estates, they would lease out parts of the estates to farmers who would use the land, who would make a profit for themselves, and they would also pay a lease with the product that they were producing on the land. And so the two most common crops that were grown in Israel were olives and wheat. Those were the most uh, productive, those were the most popular uh, things that they grew there. They still probably do. And we see in our story here that Jesus tells us this estate has olive production and wheat production. We, they have both of those uh, farmers producing here. And so these wealthy estate owners would have managers who would oversee and who would steward this whole operation. They would deal with the farmers. They would deal with the daily 
tasks, make sure that the books are in order, that everybody pays on time, uh, things like that. These managers were an extension of their bosses, of the landowners. They were supposed to have the owner's best interest in mind and manage in such a way that the estate would remain profitable and preserve and even expand the wealth of its owner. That's the job of a good manager, to produce enough to uh, expand and even preserve and to expand the wealth of his owner. And these managers, they were usually paid uh, by a percentage of what the farmers produced and paid into the estate. And so if the manager managed well, it would go well not just for the master, for the estate owner, but also for him. And the managers knew that. And they, representing the master, would look for all sorts of ways to maximize on the profits. And often those tactics were unfair. They would levy hidden costs and fees on farmers. And so this particular manager, he wanted to win from both sides. He would levy taxes on the farmers, and he was also mishandling things from, uh, from, from, by, not, by not producing enough or stealing from his uh, estate owner. He was a dishonest manager, we read. He was lining his own pockets. He was taking the profits for himself. He was mismanaging for his own gain. And so we see that the word got to the master, and the master calls this man over, and he tells him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. He basically fires him. Now, how the manager responds to this situation is what Jesus will commend and set up as an example. And in verse 3, we see the, the manager's thought process. We see his thought process after he is fired. He says, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. Based on his own description of himself, we can imagine what kind of a guy he is. He is one of those who probably didn't work physically a day in his life. He's scared of manual labor, and he is too ashamed to go beg on the streets. We, every one of us probably knows a guy or two like this. <laughs> In that economy, manual labor was 97, 95% of all the jobs. You either worked hard or you were a beggar on the streets. And he's like, I'm not going to do any of those. And in verse 4, we see the unraveling of his plan, what he decides to do. He says, I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to the other, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The debtors, um, the producers, these farmers who are leasing the land on the estate, they have a contract of how much they owe in return to the master for the land that they're using. 
And this manager sees that he's out, and he decides to use the last moments that he has on this estate to get on the good side of these farmers. He's going to help them with the hope that in the future they will later help him. So he calls them one by one, and he begins to rework, rewrite their contract. So um, just so that we can have an idea, the numbers that we're working with, 100 measures of oil is about 900 gallons. Um, this is 20 barrels of olive oil that we're working with here. 100 measures of wheat is about 100 bushels, 1,000 bushels, I'm sorry, which is about 60,000 pounds. It would take over 100 acres to produce this, min- this much wheat. These are huge amounts of oil and of wheat. And these percentages, 50% by which the, uh, the, the debt is, is cut for oil and 20% that the manager is cutting uh, for the wheat, these numbers, Jesus doesn't just pull them out of nowhere. He's not making these numbers up. Um, these were commonly uh, used percentages to levy extra fees on, these, on this produce because when oil is produced, by the time it's sold, by the time it goes out into the markets and it's given uh, the people buy them, 50% of it about would spoil. And so the state owners, they would tack on these fees to guarantee their own profits. And if there was less spoilage, if they really took care of the stock, they would profit even more. The wheat had about a 20% chance. Uh, 20% of wheat on average would spoil. So this manager is basically removing all these extra fees, all these hidden costs, these built-in protections that benefited the master, and he dropped the cost of their leases so that they could, uh, they could pay wh- wh- whatever the exact amount that they actually owed. And so this would please the farmers. For them, these fees were unfair. From their point of view, they give the master good, unspoiled produce. And as soon as it gets into the hands of the master, that's his responsibility, the spoilage. Why should they pay for it? So what the manager did by cutting out these fees, it would please the farmers greatly. And because the manager is the extension of the master, these would be legally binding contracts. The farmers think that the manager is representing the master's best interest. They think that this isn't just the manager. They think that the master approved of all this. The farmers would not only be happy with the manager, but they would also be pleased with their master. He is finally dealing with them fairly. Imagine in those times, These leases would be passed on from generation to generation. You just can't up and move. You can't just go to another new lease. Your whole livelihood is there. And no doubt this action would hit the headlines. Word would spread all over town how amazing and great the master and this manager is. How amazing this estate is. How well they treat the farmers. No doubt this word would spread. Because everybody in that town would work. They would come and be workers at these estates. And so this puts the master in in a hard place. 
firing the manager looks bad now. He will get sympathy after he's fired from others. The manager, he won favor with the debtors. He also won favor with the rest of the town. If the master goes back on his word, this would mean negative PR. And again, it would make the manager look good. And so he puts the master in this difficult position. Whatever the master does, the manager wins. The manager wins. And so in verse 8, we read, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Even the master had to admit that this dishonest manager made some smart moves. The master is in the midst of loss, but he can't but appreciate and be amazed at the manager's shrewdness and how sharp-witted he is. Now he made a good situation out of a horrible one. He commends the manager. In a moment of crisis, as he is fired, he used his master and the master's estate to secure himself a good name, favor, and a future. His shrewdness was that he exploited his master to secure himself friends on the other side. Friends with the common folk, friends with the farmers, friends with the workers at the expense of the master and his wealth. And Jesus, through this parable, commends this manager for his shrewdness as well. And he says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, what does this mean for us? How do we apply this text? Um, Well, the first thing we must do is we cannot ignore the greater context. And the greater context is that he's talking to the, to the Pharisees. They're the ones who are supposed to hear this. We cannot ignore their reaction. Let's remember again the context. In, uh, in chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, the sinners and tax collectors came to Jesus. He is eating with them, and the Pharisees, they are grumbling at Jesus. They cannot believe the fact that Jesus has received them. And for the next three parables in chapter 15 and two parables in chapter 16, Jesus responds to them. He shows them why he is pursuing and seeking out the sinners and the tax collectors. The parables of the lost sheep and the coin and the prodigal son, they show us God's heart towards sinners, how he seeks them out and the joy that is in heaven when they are found. In the parable of the prodigal son, we also see the older brother who represents the Pharisees. Their contempt towards the grace and mercy of God towards repenting sinners. They hate the mercy of God. And this, we see this parallel all throughout these chapters. On one side we have God who loves, who forgives, who accepts repentant sinners And the other other side, we have the Pharisees who have no mercy towards sinners. They despise them, and they despise anyone 
who shows mercy to them. And so as Jesus tells this parable, we read their reaction. Verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Hearing, their, hearing this parable, they're upset with Jesus. They sneer at him. They mock him. Why? Why do they react in this way? What does their love of money have anything to do with this parable? As we've studied the Gospel of Luke, we've, we've seen, we've seen it over and over again how the Pharisees have misused their position of authority and power. The Pharisees have le- levied and imposed heavy burdens on the people of God. This is a highly religious culture. And the Pharisees have massive political and religious power over the people, and they have abused this power for their own gain. Jesus said in Luke eleven forty six, 46, Woe to you, lawyers and Pharisees, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. What are these burdens? What are these uh, loads that are hard to bear that the Pharisees are putting on the people of God? In Leviticus 5 and 6, uh, God gave the law, and he's made provisions that when people violate those laws, when they would become unclean through various ways, they can purify themselves by going to the temple and bringing a sacrifice to God. It would be sometimes uh, animals, sometimes even with money. And so what the Pharisees did, they took advantage of this law. They expanded on these laws. They added to what God has commanded. They created many, many, many more categories to these purity laws, and they levied heavy fines, sacrifices that people had to make when they violated these made-up laws so that the people would go and make themselves pure, supposedly pure and right with God again. What the Pharisees were doing was absolutely evil. They were using something that was holy and good to take advantage of people, and they were becoming rich off of this. They were dishonest managers that levied heavy fees on the farmers that leased the land. That's why hearing this parable, they ridiculed Jesus. And they ridiculed Jesus because they loved money and they hated that Jesus was exposing their injustice, their dishonesty with the people. In verse 15, Jesus says to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. In other words, they made it look they made it seem legit for the people. Nobody was questioning their action. Everybody bought into the system as though that is how things should be. They have justified what they were doing before men. Jesus tells them, God knows your heart. God knows that you are taking advantage of 
people, what you are doing is an abomination. It is disgusting and God hates it. And Jesus continues in verse 16. He says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Jesus is calling them to discern and to recognize the time. He says the law and the prophets were until John. John the Baptist, he marks the division. He marks the end of that time, of that era. But a new dawn has come. There is a changing of the guard. Things will no longer continue as they did. Why? Because the kingdom of God has arrived. The gospel has come, and with it, the time of reckoning has come. All the accounts must be reconciled. Everything must be brought to order. The Pharisees are the old guard, and their time is finished. They were the guardians of the Old Testament. They were the guardians of the law, and they have failed. They mismanaged God's word. They used it to lay heavy burdens on the people and to line their own pockets. And Jesus is basically telling them they are fired. They are done. He is calling them to recognize the moment. They will not be given the management of the new kingdom. They will not receive the keys to the church. Their time is over. They were guardians of the law, but they won't be guardians of the New Testament. That system is done. And so Jesus is calling them to be shrewd. As they are criticizing Christ for spending time with sinners and tax collector, as Jesus is spreading the gospel of the kingdom of God, as he's proclaiming the kingdom has come, the Pharisees have ignored everything, and all they're doing is ridiculing Christ. Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, be shrewd. Recognize the time. He is calling them to recognize the moment as the manager did in the parable. What Jesus is calling them to do is nothing short of repentance. He's calling them to abandon their unjust ways. He's telling them to change their posture and attitude towards the people. He's calling them to use unrighteous wealth to make friends for themselves. Imagine the joy if they canceled all of these stupid fees for all their religious violations. Imagine the joy that would go throughout the country. Imagine the joy if the Pharisees would give back the money they've stole from the people. He's calling them to stop oppressing them and to make friends with them. Drop all the heavy religious taxes and fees that are disguised as holy offerings to God that God has never required. Have compassion on the sinners. Make peace with them. Abandon the dishonest pursuit of money. That is what the kingdom of God is about. It's about saving the lost, not taking advantage of the lost like they did. Yet to let go of this dishonest game requires a heart change. 
and they are not willing to repent. Jesus tells them no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God or money. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees that they are serving money. That is their God. Under the pretense of religion, under the pretense of holiness, they were so in love with money they could not recognize that their end has come. They could not recognize Christ. They were not able to be shrewd, to trade this unrighteous wealth for true riches of the kingdom of God. That is why they grumbled at Jesus again. They were not able to repent. They did not love God. They did not love his word. They were lovers of money. If you remember in chapter 15, verse 1, when the Pharisees grumbled at Jesus for spending time with tax collectors and sinners, they could not believe that Jesus would spend time with them, how Jesus would make himself unclean by hanging out with them. Jesus does something amazing here. He turns the tables on them. Jesus shows everyone that the Pharisees are actually worse than tax collectors and sinners. They grumbled at Jesus that he spent time with tax collectors, yet he shows the Pharisees that they are worse because they laid heavy, false, fake morality that God has never required on the people. They made up laws, and they burdened people with them. And then when people inevitably stumbled, they made them pay up under the pretense that that is what God requires. They are worse than tax collectors. They are tax collectors with hypocrisy and under the pretense of holiness. Everybody is praising them how holy they are, yet they are fleecing the people of God. And next week, Jesus will show us that they are worse than sinners. Jesus will expose them because on one end, they have tightened up. They've added rules. But on the other, where it profited them, they relaxed the word of God, especially in the area of divorce and remarriage. They have justified themselves so that they can swap out wives at any moment for any reason. For any, on any ground. They, could, they love a woman. They see a woman they like. They can divorce their, find any reason to divorce their wife and go pursue the other woman. They have relaxed the law of God to satisfy their perverse sexual desires. Jesus turns the tables on them to show them that you are worse than the sinners and the tax collectors that you are raising yourselves up of. So this is the immediate context. This is the immediate application of this parable. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot that we cannot even touch. But there's a broader application of this parable that applies to us today. First, this is a warning to all pastors and religious leaders against taking advantage of God's people, taking advantage of God's requirement God's asking of people to give to the church and to tithe. This is a warning 
to all pastors and religious leaders against taking advantage of God's people and God's money. It is a a warning against perverting the word of God for their own gain. There are many who have fleeced God and who continually fleece God's people for their own gain, even today. Some easy targets, televangelists, word of faith movements, promising hundredfold returns if you donate to their causes while they fly on private jets. This also applies to pastors trying to build themselves empires out of their churches, often on the backs of hundreds and thousands of tirelessly working volunteers, all in the name of Jesus, but actually to build up the pastor's own name and his empire. This applies to pastors who are like chameleons. They will do anything to please people because they are afraid to lose the donor base, and they will go with any cultural tide just to make sure the people are happy and keep on giving. They will not teach certain parts of scriptures, or they will beat around the bush or completely pervert to go along with the culture. Jesus says, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. This is a warning from Jesus to the leaders, to the Pharisees, and to the leaders today. And not only is Jesus calling leaders and pastors to be faithful stewards of the resources of the flock and of his word, but this also applies to all of us directly and how we use our money. This world is passing away. There will be a changing of the guard again for one last time. This world has no future. The kingdom of God has a future. And so God is calling, Jesus is calling for us to secure true riches with the possessions that God has given us here today. Jesus calls us to recognize the time, that our time is short, it's fleeting, and to use the resources that God has given us to secure true riches in the kingdom that is to come. Jesus is calling us to be shrewd, to recognize, to realize that this world is going to end, and to begin investing into the world that is to come, not by cheating, not by dishonesty, but by realizing that this world is passing away and we are to use our unrighteous wealth, the possessions and riches of the world, to make friends in the kingdom that is to come. Jesus says to all of us, no servant can serve two masters, for he will either uh, hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus tells us, do not serve your money. But with the money that God has given you, serve him. Serve his kingdom. Use your possessions to advance the kingdom. Use your possessions to see the gospel of Jesus take root in the hearts of sinful men. 
And this really requires a heart change. Only a born-again, repentant heart can truly serve God with his or her possessions. Can hold it loosely and manage whatever God has given. God has given us some a little and some much. And God calls us to steward all of this for the glory of God and for the advancement of his kingdom. Some of us are trying to serve two masters. Jesus is saying you can't. And one of the ways to check is how you use your money. Are you a slave? Or are you generous towards the kingdom of God, knowing that this world is passing away? Christ calls us to recognize the time and to be shrewd with our possessions. All the possessions we have here, no matter how much God gives us, it passes. We cannot take it with us, but we can use it to secure true riches. And that is what Jesus is calling us today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that, Lord, there is no rock that you leave unturned in our lives. Lord, you call us to serve and worship you with all that we are and with all that we have. And Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the word that you have preserved for us and the instruction that you give to us, Father. Father, we ask that you would forgive us for all the times that we have served our money, that we have made it our God, and we have not used it to serve the kingdom of God. Lord, forgive us. Father, help us be wise, help us be shrewd, help us recognize, and help us always keep in mind that this world is passing. Lord, I just pray that we as a church would steward the money that you gave to us well, that we would use it for your glory, for the advancement of your kingdom, Father. And Lord, our money and the way we deal with it displays so much about our love for you. Our relationship to our money uh, exposes so much of who we are. So Father, make us aware of that. Help us become aware of how, we, how our relationship is with our money, Lord, and then use that to draw us to you to serve you, and to glorify you with what you have entrusted to us to steward. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.